1: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Life is something we need to stop correcting. That's what Theo, the single father who narrates Richard Powers' latest novel, *The Wilderman, thinks, when doctors try to prescribe medication for Robin, his passionately curious and emotionally volatile young son. But as Robin continues to lash out, Theo enrolls him in an experimental brain therapy that expands his empathic abilities and sharpens his scientific gifts. The novel, informed in part by the classic fable Flowers for Algernon, evokes a similar sense of beauty and foreboding. Powers' previous novel is The Overstory, about the social and emotional lives of trees and the humans that interact with them. Richard Powers, welcome to Forum.
2: Thanks so much, Mina. I'm grateful to be on the show.
1: Well, we're grateful to have you. We were just talking about California's magnificent sequoias before the break, something I imagine many listeners now associate with you because of your last book, The Overstory. Um, I don't know if you have any reflections on what's happening right now to California's ancient forests, um, but wanted to give you a chance if it sparked anything for you.
2: Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Uh, I have been watching with the rest of the world uh with the daily anxiety and uh, watching the extraordinary steps that are being taken to, to, to save some of the big trees. I was of course, uh, one of the many people who were reduced to tears by the castle fire. And I remember going to Mariposa Grove in Yosemite uh, while researching the overstory and talking to experts there and asking them at the time, which now is, you know, a handful of years ago, half a dozen years ago, uh, whether there was increasing concern uh, for these trees because of uh, you know, the cataclysmic alterations in climate that we're creating, whether the increased droughts, temperatures, fires uh, present great danger, they uh, were, were quite uh, adamant and quite reassuring uh, at that time. That the immense uh, fire resistance that these trees right. uh, have developed, as as Lauren Summer mentioned in, in in the previous segment, uh, would you know would guarantee that uh, you know that that these durable trees would be around for a long time to come, and you know that it's tough to bring down a three thousand year old tree, a tree <laughs> uh, whose species is you know. Uh, a couple hundred year, million adaptation for you know for extreme environment, uh, but I think that the last few years have been a wake up call for all of us, uh, and we, as as Lauren mentioned, we are now in a new place, and we have to be taking a completely different uh, sense of what's needed to intervene if we if we want these majestic creatures as uh, part of our lives uh, in the future.
1: Well, your new novel, Bewilderment, also deals with these large questions, and, and of course about nature as well, and the cosmos uh, this time. But you've called it a more intimate novel than The Overstory, even a pandemic novel. And, and I was curious what you meant by that. Yes, Bewilderment
2: is at face value very different from Overstory. You know, Overstory is 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 a long, you know, more than 500 page book uh, with, uh, with a huge cast, uh, nine major characters and several minor ones. Um, it unfolds over a couple of centuries. It's written in numerous different literary styles from numerous different perspectives. Bewilderment at face value seems to be almost the opposite. It is less than half the length of, of Overstory. Uh, it is entirely dominated by two characters, Theo Byrne, uh, a single father in his late 30s, an astrobiologist who's struggling to raise uh, his troubled, intense uh, nine-year-old son, Robin, uh, whose mother has died about two years before the, the book be- begins. This book is uh, uh, stylistically much simpler. It's, it's, it's entirely told through the first-person perspective of Theo. Uh, so there's really only one uh, uh, literary style that's explored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, despite all the differences between the books, I think of bewilderment almost as a kind of uh, bud from the tree of Overstory. Uh, Overstory <laughs> asks this you know, large question of, you know, uh, what is it that we need to become uh, in order to return to planet Earth, to live reciprocally in, uh, in interdependence with the neighbors, and to give up this human exceptionalism and this culture of domination and mastery. How, how, how can we make that change? What would it look like? And in Bewilderment, I take that same preoccupation, the question of how far we've wandered from the more than human world, And I try to dramatize in a fairly simple story, almost a fable, what that change in consciousness might look like, how one person, in this case a nine-year-old boy, might be changed by coming to inhabit that way of thinking about the world.
1: I started by reading a quote from Theo saying, life is something we need to stop correcting, which evokes this sense of intervention. Um, there's this point in your book where Theo tells readers a little bit about Robin, who's been diagnosed by several doctors, although not definitively, um, as being on what, as readers, we assume to be on the autism spectrum. And Theo explains how he processes that information. And I was wondering if you could read a little bit of that part from the book. It starts on, on page four um, with uh, with Theo reacting to yet another doctor (laughs) telling him about Robin and then describing a little bit about what Robin goes through. Would you mind?
2: I'd be delighted. Uh, So this is uh, following a brief section uh, where, where Theo is ruminating on the intensity uh, of his son and the ways in which Robin uh, diverges quite pronouncedly uh, from other boys of his age. Uh, and yet he's pushing back against a medicalization he he wants to believe somehow that although his son is clearly very very different and has very distinctive uh, personality and behavioral traits uh, he he would like to believe somehow that the the trauma that Robin has lived through in the loss of his mother might go a long way uh, toward um, uh, understanding the boy better than this kind of uh, Uh, imposition of diagnosis on rough nights when Robin retreated to my bed he wanted to be on the side farthest from the endless terrors outside the window his mother had always wanted the safe side too he daydreamed had trouble with deadlines and yes he refused to focus on things that didn't interest him but he never fidgeted or dashed around or talked without stopping. And he could hold still for hours with things he loved. Tell me what deficit matched up with all that? What disorder explained him? The suggestions were plentiful, including syndromes linked to the billions pounds of toxins sprayed on the country's food supply each year. His second pediatrician was keen to put Robin on the spectrum. I wanted to tell the man that everyone alive on this fluke little planet was on the spectrum. That's what a spectrum is. I wanted to tell the man that life itself is a spectrum disorder where each of us vibrated at some unique frequency in the continuous rainbow. Then I wanted to punch him. I suppose there's a name for that too. Oddly enough, there's no name in the DSM for the compulsion to diagnose people. When his school suspended Robin for two days and put their own doctors on the case, I felt like the last reactionary throwback. What was there to explain? Synthetic clothing gave him hideous eczema. His classmates harassed him for not understanding their vicious gossip. His mother was crushed to death when he was seven. His beloved dog died of confusion a few months later. What more reason for disturbed behavior did any doctor need? Watching medicine fail my child, I developed a crackpot theory. Life is something we need to stop correcting. My boy was a pocket universe I could never hope to fathom. Every one of us is an experiment and we don't even know what the experiment is testing. My wife would have known how to talk to the doctors Nobody's perfect, she liked to say, but man, we all fall short so beautifully.
1: Richard Powers, reading from his new novel, Bewilderment. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. If there's something you'd like to ask Richard Powers or... If you have reactions to what you're hearing, you can give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Perhaps you care for a neurodivergent child and and Theo's ruminations resonate with you. You can post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. I wanted to ask you about something that you wrote in the author's note. You talk a little bit about your niece and your nephew, which suggests there's some degree of inspiration there. But there is also this moment when you seem to be talking about what it's like to be a child today and to be on a planet that is changing. You write at one point, I kept reading accounts of the toll our growing environmental catastrophe is taking on the young and it made me ask if if you, in some ways, are concerned about the way, while climate change is such an important and incredible issue, are you asking us to think about the way we talk about them with, with people who probably, who don't live in this current world, who haven't missed out on a better world, they're living in the now, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know... Uh, Robin
2: is an exceptional child. There's no question about that. It, you know, there, there is so much about him that isn't normative. Um, whether or not Theo is correct in resisting the diagnoses that doctors give him drives the, the plot of the book, and the consequences of his choice actually set in motion the crisis and climax of the story. However, even though I cast Robin as being uh, unusual and non-normative. I think he is absolutely representative of children in at least that one respect. Uh, his trauma in the face of discovering the state of the world and his incredulity at adult indifference or ignorance of this crisis is Absolutely epidemic among children. I, you know, I recently, you know, f- for the promotion of the book, I did happen to do a radio show in the UK uh, with, with a, a young woman named Maya, Maya Rose Craig, and she, you know, has 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 written uh, books about uh, youthful activists. But she's saying it is it is it goes without saying. That if you are young, you are living in a state of trauma about what's happening to the world. And I, I believe that to be the case.
1: Hmm. Let me go to caller Isra in Santa Clara. Hi, Isra. Hi.
3: Um, I really loved what the author said in his passage that he read. I actually have a young son who is diagnosed with autism, and we've gone to many doctors and many different places. And it's been what he said in that passage, like I, I felt that experience, like they don't know exactly, um, you know, what my son is going through. So I thought it was very beautiful and it resonated with me deeply. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Richard Powers.
2: I'm very encouraged to hear that. Thanks for calling in. You know, this book is not a, an anti-medical establishment diatribe. It begins with the concession that medicine's attempts to understand these uh, epidemics, uh, these these new and rising uh, mental challenges facing children uh, is still uh, in its infancy. And and our diagnostic categories are still very crude and fluid and and works in progress. And that's challenging for, for parents. And it's challenging for doctors as well. But, you know, at, at, at least to some degree, I, I do, you know, when, when Theo pushes back and says, I'm hearing multiple things here. I need more certainty before I can act. My child is very young. To, to put a very young child on medications in an almost experimental-like way is a big decision for me. I just need to 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 make sure that I don't replace the, the individual child with this diagnostic category. And I I think that's at the heart of this this challenge. And you know I don't I I I don't have a, a an answer for for parents who are struggling with something similar. Uh, but I, I I do think that we need to be uh, open and sympathetic uh, to the need to see difference, not necessarily as a harmful thing that that needs to be uh, regulated or normatized. Uh, I think so much of our richness and potential, As a species and so much of our prospects for the future are going to depend upon seeing huge difference among people not as a liability but as an asset
1: your novel has this distinct sort of dystopian undercurrent to it and when you're talking about you know seeing people and differences as assets i'm struck by that, because the book is set sort of within this Trumpian political landscape uh, that feels familiar, but but it's almost like what the u s. would have gone through and how we would have turned more authoritarian if Trump had been reelected. You're talking about executive orders and tweets systematically sort of chipping away at civil liberties. Why did you set your novel in a climate like that? Is it in mm. part to try to hit home what you just said earlier, or was there more to it? You know, when I
2: first began to understand what kind of book I was writing, I was trying I, I, I was trying to cast the story as a more traditional social realist book that did reference real-world events and real-world chronologies and real-world personalities by name and specifically by date and by place. And little by little I realized I was writing a kind of soft science fiction. Uh, The the book is uh, propelled by a plot uh, involving a technology called decoded neurofeedback that actually exists as a therapy, but I I extend it and uh, increase its capacities beyond its current uses. Uh, And whether or not uh, the the world that I describe is one year away or five years away or may never happen, uh, I'm not sure. But the point is to produce precisely the effect that you mentioned. Uh, Rather than to invite a reader to say, this is Earth, and I know what Earth is like, I put them in a place that's a near earth. You know, science fiction likes to use this uh, near future uh, technique. You know, the the world as we're living in it, but with the rules just slightly changed because some new technology has come along to shift all the groundwork. Well, this book is a kind of near present. It's a parallel earth. It's it's familiar enough to be recognizable, but strange enough to produce that... uh, Slight derangement and distortion that you mentioned, so that you don't know from one page to the next whether this world will follow the trajectory trajectory of our own world. And I have to say, you know, the, you, you're mentioning uh, the, the, the geopolitical crises in the book and this kind of road not taken, the trajectory uh, uh, of uh, totalitarianism. Uh, we're not out of the woods yet. <laughs>
1: true. Richard Powers. will have more with him after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to Richard Powers about his new novel, Bewilderment, about a Widowed Dad and His Son Connecting Through the Cosmos. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. If you have questions you'd like to ask Richard Powers, reactions to what you're hearing, perhaps you care for a neurodivergent child or a neurodivergent and have thoughts on what Powers has been talking about or even about how we grapple with the climate change crisis and how we help children understand it. What are your thoughts on this? 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed. Dot org. Post thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Let me go to Michael in Boston. Hi, Michael.
0: Yes, hello. I'm on the spectrum, and um, my life was blighted by my parents in school having the expectation that I would be like a normal child.
3: Hmm. So
0: even though a diagnosis shouldn't be a doom, it can be extremely useful in avoiding um essentially breaking someone when you uh, make them distort themselves to an extent that uh, you don't even understand you're making them do. Just making me be around a whole bunch of noisy children uh, when I was a child was uh, unspeakably horrible. And I'm still, uh, you know, I think I'm much more of a misanthrope than I would have been otherwise.
1: Mm. Well, Michael, thank you for sharing that. I I really appreciate it. I don't know, Richard Powers, if you had a quick reaction to Michael.
2: Yes, I'd love to ask Michael uh, what he would uh, see as a kind of uh, preferable or optimal way of um, uh, uh, happily addressing uh, children who are like him uh, now
3: sheltered workshops for the gifted.
1: Well, Michael, thank you. As I'm thinking about what Michael says, I'm thinking about what we just talked about before the break. You signal early in your book, Richard Powers, that this story, Bewilderment, um, is informed by flowers for Algernon. You say that, I believe, in the author's note as well. And we have this sense of, of loss to come. We have a bit of a sense of foreboding through the book. Was this by design? Why did you feel it was important to talk about flowers for an Algernon early?
2: You know, uh, the, the, the technique uh, that uh, underwrites the therapy that Robin eventually uh, uh, engages in uh, is based on an actual technique called decoded neurofeedback, and uh, it's been around for over a decade. Um, I first learned about it in 2013, and uh, when I when I did read about this idea of training people to emulate uh, the brain patterns of pre of of other people that have been recorded and used as a template. It, it chilled me, and it, it also uh, immediately uh, set loose a kind of imaginative exploration of that uh, possible uh, it, t- technological intervention as something like a, an emotional intelligence trainer, that, that a person who could uh, gradually learn uh, to um, experience emotional states that that are different from their own uh, m- might somehow uh, more rapidly um, expand their own repertoire of of Im- emotional intelligence and I thought well that that actually, as a plot, it sounds a little familiar, and it took me a moment to remember the story that I had read when I was just a little bit older than Robin, about a a science fiction intervention that allows an individual person to enhance their intellectual uh, capacity. And I I, I went back to look at Flowers for Algernon, and I saw that Daniel Keyes uses as his epigraph a passage from Plato's Republic, uh, the allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. You know, where we're all locked in a in a cave, watching shadows on the wall and taking it for reality. And one of us breaks out and goes outside and sees. No, actually, there is a reality out here, and what we've been what we've been experiencing is a is a simulacrum. Uh, and and this the passage that Keyes uses is is, is from precisely that moment. And Plato says, uh, the mind like the eye, knows two kinds of bewilderment, going into the light and coming out of it. And when I read that epigraph, I realized that the story that I had in mind was another version of Plato's cave, another way of saying we all are somehow trapped uh, inside the locked room of our, of our, of our own constituent Temperament and experience, and of course, the mind is going to be bewildered if it leaves that room and goes into the light. And of course, it's going to be bewildered again when it has to leave the light and come back into the into the enclosed confines.
1: It sounds like there are also parallels in some ways. When we think about Plato's Republic, we think about Flowers for Algernon, the evolution and devolution of Robin's journey. The devolution of our democracy that you're putting out there in bewilderment. I feel like the other thing you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're also really talking about this notion of the self and almost being trapped in that notion as well. Are are you also getting to that, Richard Powers?
2: Well, sure, and I think so much of fiction does uh, circle around that question. Uh, you know, this the the great challenge of of being human is you know being in the maelstrom in the torrent of all of these personal sensations and impressions and inferences uh, looking out seeing other creatures who aren't us uh, and wondering how different am I Uh, you know do they feel what I feel Uh, when I have a moment of affinity and connection with another person. Is it real, or am I just projecting this? And you know, this is the bread and butter of fiction. You know? <laughs> uh, how do we know what it is to be someone other than ourselves? And I also have to say, it is uh, the engine behind the great pleasure of reading that when <laughs> a reader immerses into a story and lives for a while, uh, inside the lives of uh, characters in a book. They're doing so because the human brain is hungry for that sense of narrative participation. Uh, these leaps of empathy and identification are uh, built to want to see if what we think is real is corroborated by other people. And fiction's ability, unique ability, to, to allow us to be to see the world from a different subject position for a while, anyway, is really uh, the only way out of the locked the the, the the locked
3: room, however briefly.
1: Let me go to caller Renee in Pinal. Hi, Renee.
3: Oh hello Nina and uh Richard Powers. Um uh, long-time first time caller. Um I do wanna say and I wanna get uh, Richard's opinion on this. Um I uh, uh I lived here in this country for about forty years and uh uh you know, when I first arrived I bought all the you know, I drank all the Kool-Aid and I believe that uh working hard, keeping your head down and and, and and paying your taxes was the way to go and get ahead in this country, but things have uh have shifted tremendously in this country where uh, opportunity isn't as readily available as it it once was. So uh, my my children uh, both have graduated from university. And I was speaking to my son a couple days ago, which really stunned me what he said.
0: Um, He
3: graduated from the University of uh, San Diego, UCSD. And he was telling Mm -hmm. me that he he and all his friends, about five friends that he keeps contact with, all feel the same way. They're all, you know, educated. Uh, they're all not working on their field. And uh, the pressures of the pandemic, uh, coupled with global warming and uh, just the, the political uh, divisiveness that this country has, it, it is going into or has been in for a while, have really uh, sombered their outlook on uh, on life. And none of them are looking to uh, for a bright future. None of them plan to get married. They certainly aren't going to be buying any homes because they can't afford it, even with their you know, higher education. Um, a question for Richard was, and, and sorry for my verbose uh, question here, but uh, but my my main thing is, what have you, uh, Richard, encountered, and what advice have you given this next couple of generations that are, you know, weight of the world on their on their shoulders, where they mm-hmm. feel they need to change the planet, but yet aren't empowered to do so because, you know, quite frankly. Young folks don't have a whole lot of power or like these that they that they wield. So, it, it, yes. I, I think my answer offline. Thank
1: well, you. Renee, thanks for calling in for the first time, Richard Powers.
2: And, and please don't apologize for, uh, for for the length of the question. I think uh, your experience talking to your your son uh, absolutely corroborates what I'm hearing again and again and again on the part of older people talking to the young. This the the how. Shocking it is to understand the degree and the depth of that sense of, of alienation and that sense of despair. Uh, it is derived in part as you say from from uh, economic faltering. Uh, capitalism doesn't seem to be working the same kind of expansion game that uh, uh, that it did when this culture, Got laid down, but I think it is also uh, tied to this kind of eco trauma that we were talking about earlier. That sense of uh, you know the, the 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 wealth of the world has been so seriously degraded. Uh, why why engage at all? You know we're we're just in a waiting game now. My stories, this book, and the previous book, and uh, my call for other kinds of fiction uh, is is for. Uh, it is is aimed at the uh, the idea that we have to change what we think of as a meaningful life. Uh, we are we are deeply colonized by a socio political and an economic cast of mind that defines meaning in terms of individual accumulation and in terms of human exceptionalism. Uh, and we we believe that uh, the, the 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 life worth living is is the one that is simply getting uh, in in the words of, of of Andrew Carnegie just a little bit more. And I think part of the the, uh, the dismay that you're describing is also driven by the realization that that kind of meaning can never actually produce an ultimate satisfaction Mm -hmm. my fiction attempts to find a meaning that circulates beyond the self that partakes in older kinds of cultural formations the kinds of uh, knowledges that uh, many indigenous cultures around the world have known uh, throughout human history which is that we are part of a larger process and we can locate meaning in identification with participation in rehabilitation of and interdependent merging with that larger set of processes. And I, I think that that there are stories that can remind young people that hope, which is simply a commitment to engage the future is still viable if we can Accept the fact that who we are and what we're trying to do with the world has to change.
1: And I want to remind listeners that we're talking to Richard Powers' His new novel is Bewilderment. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. One of the things that I'm struck by in hearing you say that is is. You you gave an interview to the New York Times, and they quoted you as saying, how did we lose our sense of living here on Earth? How did we become so alienated and estranged from everything else alive? How did we con- get convinced that we're the only interesting game in town? And when I hear you talking about interdependence, when I hear you talking about novels as a way to sort of get outside of yourself— It sounds like you really feel like this is a way to get at and to address some of the biggest issues facing our time, like climate change, like the climate apocalypse that feels like it's upon us.
2: Mm. You know, there's a line in my previous novel, The Overstory, um, all the best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that will do that is a good story. And often we approach climate catastrophe as a series of arguments, a series of facts and figures and uh, an engineering problem, you know, that uh, we know that uh, a certain parts per million threshold uh, is viable, we know we're above that, we know we have to get our parts per million, you know, of carbon in the atmosphere down below that threshold. And I think that can be demoralizing for a lot of people. That story is say, is still the story of uh, mastering the world through a series of te- technological interventions without necessarily changing the way that we think about ourselves and our relationship with more than human. The stories that that I think are gonna be necessary to change people's minds, to change what they think of as important and meaningful uh, and, and full of significance are going to be stories that, r- that return us to an understanding of how absolutely contingent our existence is and how dependent it is on so many other kinds of life. Uh, you know, we, I, I think we wandered into this place Through technology, honestly, as as our machines got stronger and more powerful, our ability to manipulate uh, the living world uh, became, you know, uh, more and more powerful and unchecked. Uh, We drifted into a kind of lazy way of thinking that somehow we could go it alone, that we and our technological leverage were no longer accountable to the living world. But, you know, there's a there's a great quote. Uh, from uh, the, the the former U.S. Senator and environmentalist Gaylord Nelson, uh, he says uh, we have to remember that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, and not the other way around. And so, you know, the the, the what I'm advocating for is a kind of um, a purpose and a, a joy-inflected life that acknowledges that living among the neighbors in a reciprocal environment will be as rewarding as the rewards that we have tried to extract from thinking purely economically in the the limited sense of that word.
1: We have less than a minute, but I read that part of this book was inspired by a hallucinatory sensation of carrying a child on your shoulders it's a personal question. Again, we don't have much time, but you do not have children of your own, correct?
2: I don't, but I have been a surrogate parent to a couple of children who were deeply important to me. And I think it, were, it was these children who I was challenging, uh, channeling uh, when I felt that perception uh, of a child on my back on a trail uh. in the woods and came up with this idea of writing this book.
1: Well, I thank you for reminding us to channel a childlike mind. Uh, Richard Powers, your novel Bewilderment, thank you so much for talking to us about it.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: This is Forum.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.